Courage to Hope with Tony LaGreca is a show supporting the fight for sobriety against substance abuse and changing the stigma that comes along with it. Tony has been helping families, friends, and loved ones discover recovery services as well as coping skills for over six years following the death of his own son to opioids. Join Tony and his guests each week as they reveal the courage to hope. Here's your host, Tony LaGreca. Yes, thank you, Ben. And this evening we have a very, very interesting guest. His name is Dr. Dan Bush, and he's from the Midwest area. And welcome, Dan. Thanks, Tony. Okay. So Dan is a is the chairman of the activist group of Fed Up. And Dan, would you like to explain to everybody what is Fed Up and um, what do they what do they <clears throat> what do they stand for? So. Fed Up is basically a coalition of local opioid advocacy groups. And what happened was that around 2012, a bunch of people from around the country who had lost kids in the opioid epidemic were meeting each other at some of the FDA meetings where we were going in order to try to get the FDA to change its policies which had been pretty favorable to getting more opioids approved. And meeting there, people got to talking. Um, There's a woman, Judy Rumler. She lost her son, Steve. Uh, She lives in Minnesota. And she began to talk to Andrew Kolodny, who's out in, he's he's at Brandeis, Andrew. And he's like a guy who everybody knows from as somebody who's done a lot of work on the opioid epidemic. He's the president of, or I guess the founder of the Physicians for Responsible Opioid Prescribing. So he began to talk to Judy and other people began to talk to each other and they founded Fed Up, which is its full name is the Fed Up um, Coalition to End the Opioid Epidemic. And the coalition decided right at the beginning that we weren't going to take any money from the pharmaceutical industry because, believe me, the pharmaceutical industry is happy to pay money in order to buy people's loyalty. And that we were going to do everything we could on a federal level to help to bring the opioid epidemic to an end. Um, there were a lot of the people had really founded these very, very good local organizations. Uh, and they joined the group. Judy Rumler formed this wonderful organization in Minnesota. April Rivero founded this terrific organization in California, both of them after their kids died. Um, So I was not in that group right at the beginning. I joined a year afterwards uh, and became active with it. And I've been the chairman of the advocacy committee since 2016, I think. And that's about the time um, I got recruited a little bit later than that, maybe like 2018. And uh, so I was very. It seems like you've been part of us forever. So I know. Um, I, I, for everybody to know, I I did it. Some they asked me to do a speech in uh, in one of the rallies in the in D.C. And that's when I became a member. After that speech, I guess you figured that I had a a good enough voice to be out there. 
as an advocate. I think we like the accent, Tony. Uh, yeah, we, <laughs> that's right. Um, so, Tony, the other thing is when you were asking about Fed Up, up until the pandemic, we were having annual rallies in D.C. And these were an opportunity from people from all over the country to come in and get together. And sometimes we had people like congressmen also spoke, but we had a lot of individuals, both people who had lost kids and, uh, you know, other people who were doctors, I mean, congressmen, people who were involved with the movement. And it was a place where a lot of times, usually it's the moms who are really active after their kids die. So a lot of times, a lot of the participants would be new moms. I mean, by new moms, I mean moms who had recently lost their kids in the epidemic. Yeah, and I believe the rallies were quite good because yeah. being in D.C., we got a lot of attention. And yeah. people could see everything that was going on. And um, I understand that you recently retired from uh, practicing uh, medicine just so you could do this full time. Yeah. That's true. I mean, my son died, it's 10 years ago. And just, I mean, I wasn't really in a position financially or anything else to retire before that, but I've been wanting to because I felt like the amount of time that I have to devote to opioid related stuff is limited. So finally, you know, I was going to retire on the anniversary of his death, but I decided that was going to be crazy because I was going to be too sad. So I waited a couple months after that. I've been like a, a psychiatrist in practice in Chicago since about 1978, but now I retired. Um, I was the president of a, of a group practice at Northwestern Medical School. How much success do you feel that Fed Up has had? Um, since we started this mission? You know, it's a mixed thing because on a level of overall, like what's happened in this country, it's been terrible. I mean, we have more and more deaths. Things have just gotten worse and worse. And it just, it kills me, I think, just to see that. At the same time, we've had success in terms of meeting a number of different challenges, the FDA, because of a lot of pressure, um, began to change its approach to things around 2013 against its will. I mean, the FDA really was pro-pharmaceutical industry. Well, I mean, they still are, um, but they didn't want to do anything about the fact that all these people were dying. They really didn't. Um, so we had some success in that area. And I don't know if you remember, but before Obama um, got into office, there was no federal funding for anything regarding the opioid epidemic for treatment or anything. And it wasn't until like his last year in office that he even said the words opioid epidemic. And at that point, the federal government gave something like about $50 million um, to opioid treatment and it was like a big success. So now we're, now we're in the billions. I mean, 
Trump at the beginning was, he was someone who really seemed to want to do something about the epidemic, but he kind of lost his, he seemed to lose his investment in that. But at the beginning, that was a big deal that he was talking about. Um, and certainly during the Trump administration, a lot more money began to be invested in treatment. Treatment's a, a big deal, and that certainly has been one of our big um, agenda items is to make treatment available to everybody, regardless of their ability to pay for it, because that's the only way we're going to get anywhere is, I mean, people get sick with this stuff. They start it. They don't know what's going to happen. Some of them don't seem to get bothered by it. Other people get hooked on it. And once they're hooked on it, it's like they're really screwed. And once they can get some real help with it. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Going back to the FDA, um, right now there, uh, Biden has nominated somebody for the FDA and we had a Janet Wilcox, and that's is that the right name that I'm saying? Uh, Janet uh, Woodcock has been. Woodcock. She's been the the. She's terrible, Tony. I mean, she has been around through this whole opioid thing, and really has not done much about it. Um, and yet, at the same time, they act. The FDA acts like it's been perfectly reasonable and nothing's its fault. Um, I mean, really, they act that way. Like all the decisions they've made have been reasonable, but they haven't been, but they talk like that. So now the new nominee is Robert Califf, who did a short stint as the um, FDA commissioner back a few years ago. You know, there's things about him that would seem good. I mean, he's certainly knowledgeable, an expert about stuff, but he's had a lot of ties with industry. Um, and the pharmaceutical industry and the FDA wind up being in bed with each other too much. And when he took over before as the FDA commissioner, he talked about things like he was going to really do something about the opioid problem, but then he didn't. Um, and now under enough pressure, he's talking that way again. So the so we're really opposed to him. I mean, we'd like to see, and furthermore, he asked Janet Woodcock to continue to play a major role at the FDA. And if there's one thing we really don't need, it's people like Janet Woodcock. I don't know how the FDA is going to get better. There's so much money that's involved with this stuff. And people go from jobs in industry to work in the FDA and the FDA to work in industry. It's a, it's a bad situation. It's, it's yeah, bad. Yeah. It's good for, you know, if you believe that what's good for the pharmaceutical industry is good for America, you know, which people tend to do right now because they came up with the vaccines. But for the most part, I don't think it has been. And yet the FDA is in some ways, I mean, part of its mission is to, in terms of protecting Americans. It used to be that they were supposed to, to guarantee the safety of Americans with the drugs they had. They're supposed to make sure our drugs were safe. 
Now one of their goals is to try to get more drugs approved on the grounds that new drugs improve the health of Americans. So it's not just like they're going to, you know, protect us from stuff. They're going to like work with industry to get more drugs approved. I I just want to say a word more about the pharmaceutical industry because they got a few years ago, there was a, a advocacy organization that began to take money directly from the pharmaceutical industry, which I thought was disgusting because it's like getting in the bed in bed with the devil. Um, but at that time, I began to learn more about how much money the pharmaceutical industry was putting into the stuff. And it turns out their expenses for lobbying are twice as much as any other industry. They're twice as much as defense and aerospace, which is the second largest lobbying industry, I mean, industry group. I mean, they give money to just about everybody at the federal level and lots of people at the, at the state level. Um, but it turns out, which I found out the other day, that like there's these uh, patient advocacy organizations, like they had this drug that they approved for Alzheimer's disease. But it turns out that the pharmaceutical industry is paying for these advocacy organizations. So basically they come up with a new drug thing and then they say to people, hey, we got this new drug. How'd you like to form an advocacy organization to advocate for your disease? And we'll give you a bunch of money to do that. And they spend three times as much on these advocacy organizations as they do on lobbying. So their investment in these things I mean, they got this whole, they got, they've got the money they're given to Congress. They got money they're given to groups to, to advertise basically for certain drugs to get approved by the FDA. It's a terrible thing. There's, there's a report that just came out called from a, a joint thing of Lancet, which is a medical journal in Stanford University. And they really do talk about this issue and how somehow the FDA needs to get freed from industry influence. I don't know how that's going to happen, but it's just bad for the whole country. Anyway, enough about that. Yeah, now if we wanted to, um, the listeners wanted to help in making sure that this nominee doesn't get nominated. Um, that's great. What would they have to do? What, what do you suggest? Write your senator. Write your senator because Write other people's senators. I mean, there's, because it's the senators who are going to decide this. And the, he's got some degree of control. I mean, the administration is pushing him real hard. Um, but you got two groups who are opposed to him. One of them is you've got the people who've been really, um, who've been very concerned about the opioid epidemic like Ed Markey's done a lot of work with that. Um, and those guys have come out and said, hey, we don't want this guy. His ties to industry are too great. And so you got a, a number of Democrats who are opposed to him. Plus you got a lot of Republicans who are opposed to him because of the abortion issues. And they're concerned that the FDA is going to approve things that help people to have 
early you know, abortions and that this is something they're opposed to. So he could get defeated. It's like people really need to get out there and do whatever they can. I mean, okay. But I mean, this is decided in the Senate. Yeah, that'd be Senate. good. I, yeah. But my, my belief is that anybody who's ahead of the FDA should have a five-year moratorium before they're allowed to go to work for a drug company after they retire. Or, or they just should never be allowed to go to a drug company after they retire. Um, because if they approve a drug, it seems like once they approve a drug a year after, they're, they're now uh, working at, at Purdue Pharma. You know, and it's just, it's definitely what I do think. I don't think it's right. It's a conflict of interest. Because that's that thing that happened with, there was a guy named Curtis Wright and the initial language that they used when they approved OxyContin back in 95 was this language that said that OxyContin is thought to be less addictive than other opioids because of its slow distribution. There wasn't evidence for that, but the person who got that into the into their official um, product literature was Curtis Wright, who was working for the FDA. He was the guy who did that. Then two years later, he had a job at Purdue Pharma. But all of these people, all the FDA people of any real importance, wind up working for the pharmaceutical industry after they leave. Um, they wind up like they wind up saying, hey, you know, they join a, or they join a consulting firm and the consulting firm premise, the premise of the consulting firm is, are you having trouble getting your drugs approved? We know how to get them approved, you know, come to us. So this is not the way it should be. No, I agree. I mean, I remember I spoke at the FDA twice. Now you might've been there the first time, uh, but at the second time I spoke with Dr. Kolodnoy, and I was up on the stage and it seemed like the parents, we consisted about 10 or 15 people and people from the drug industry that were on the other side of the room, there's like 25 of them in suits, you know, can always tell who's the, who, who's working for the pharmaceutical industry, just how they dress, you know, and they're all, but they're all lined up and I felt like it was like a, uh, them or us kind of thing. And uh, just, well, it is because they, they also, there's been this them and us mentality, which is unfortunate, but for the opioid stuff, I mean, they wind up paying people to come to testify at the FDA meetings. So they have people where the people feel that the opioids have really helped them with whatever chronic pain condition they have. And then they have a group of those people that they pay to come to the meetings. I mean, I don't know that they're paying them extra money, but I mean, nobody's paying us. We're just doing what we can on our own in order to get there to try to say, hey, you know, you guys need to be more careful. I mean, this stuff killed our kids. And now, I mean, when people think now that it's all about fentanyl, which in some way it really is all about fentanyl, so many of the people who are now dying of fentanyl started with prescription opioids. Um, and the whole epidemic started with prescription opioids. Now, things have gotten worse and worse and worse because of the extent to which fentanyl is, is in our system here. If you buy, this isn't so much a problem out in Boston as it is in the West Coast, 
but it's common and it's already there, which is that like fentanyl's in everything at this point. Um, that if you buy like if you think you're getting coke, you're getting coke plus fentanyl, and you wind up having people who think they're getting one thing and they die because they overdose on the fentanyl and because the people who are putting the fentanyl into stuff are not careful. And on the West Coast now, whenever you go out, uh, if you buy drugs like from the street, like somebody sells you, like, hey, say, hey, you know, you want to buy some Oxycontin, you're not getting Oxycontin, you're getting pills that are made in Mexico that look just like Oxycontin, but they're not Oxycontin. They're made pills that are made of fentanyl. And you don't know when you take those whether you're going to die or not. The DEA estimated that 40% of the pills that you purchase on the street have enough fentanyl in them to kill you. So it's, it's a bad situation. So, so let's go back a little bit because uh, yeah. some, yeah, some yeah. of our listeners may not be familiar with the whole drug thing to begin with. And so my goal is obviously to limit prescriptions of opioids. And opioids are Percocet, Vicodin, Oxycontin, Oxycodone, and any of the Oxy medications. And what happened in 1995 was Richard Sackler, who was the, became the president of Purdue Pharma, um, got it said that you could take, get a prescription for oxycodone or oxycontin for any type of, of pain. Uh, they, Purdue convinced everybody that we weren't reaching our pain. We weren't doing well, very well with pain management. And that pain management was, you know, was, uh, was, we were doing a bad job of it. And so he was pushing it. And then as happened, he said that only 1% would get addicted. And my guesstimate is probably closer to 35% if you're on it for any length of time. And a length of time is one or two weeks. So now the opioid epidemic, um, it comes in a bottle. It doesn't come like a, like a, COVID does, it comes in a bottle and you get it at the drugstore. So everybody's a patient until they're an addict and then they treat it entirely differently. And would you say I'm, I'm saying that correctly there? Daniel? Yeah, I think that once you're, I don't know, people start in all kinds of different ways. I mean, where it's been a real problem was that the drug industry until maybe 2012, 2013, and they've continued to do it, but the line they pushed was there's two types of people who are using opioids. There's pain patients and there's drug abusers. So they left out the fact that a lot of people who were pain patients who started on opioids became addicted to the opioids and couldn't stop them. And now they, I mean, so it's sort of like by dividing this into those two groups, they, they took all the people like your son, you know, who got on the opioids because of, of you know, pain stuff and then wound up getting addicted to them and said, and they discounted them completely, which was terrible, obviously terrible. So, 
Yeah, there's a lot of these days. The place where where kids are the most likely to get opioids is when they get wisdom teeth removed. I mean, in terms of medical legitimate medical prescriptions. So there's a lot of work people are trying to do with the dentists because all the evidence is they don't need to give out opioids. They give, but they give like regularly give prescriptions of Vicodin. That's the place. That's right now. That's the place where the worst problem is in terms of kids. Yeah, that's, that's how they get, they get started. And uh, yeah. being a facilitator um, where parents were talking about how their kids got addicted, I would say out of the group that I had, probably one third of them, uh, especially if the child died when he, was, he or she was in their early 20s, late teens, it was not, most of those were from the dentist or from sports injury or a car accident, those three things that they seem to like to make sure that the, the hospital's covered, you walk out and you're, the pain's being masked up by the opioids, you know, and that's the biggest thing that have to start. We're here visiting with, with Daniel, Dr. Daniel Bush, who is the chairman of the activist of the group Advocacy Fed, Committee. Advocacy, Advocacy Committee, uh, yeah. Fed Up, okay. Um, during our little break there, uh, Dan, you wanted to mention how your son uh, passed away, and uh, he's, he died approximately two years before mine did. Um, and would you like to tell that story? Yes, yeah, some because I mean he was really. I was impressed with him as as a kid. He was he was very bright, although I don't think he realized it. Um, until later in the game. But he was also a kind of ballsy kid. I mean, he he was early on when he was in elementary school, he got interested in hockey because that was the game where we were. And he was interested in being a goalie. And I was amazed at his ability to recover because I think if I had been a goalie, the puck goes in the net, I'm going to start crying. Um, he wasn't like that. It was like, you know, puck goes in the net, you know, he's not happy, but he reconstitutes so he can continue to play. And he got, he played, he was the, um, the varsity goalie at his high school in his freshman year and then played AAA and then went to, from Chicago, he went out to Massachusetts to, played juniors in his senior year in high school, went to high school out at Westboro High. Um, and, but he wasn't making it. Um, but I mean, that was his deal. He was a hockey player. Um, his sister, our daughter, um, she's a, a surgeon and he had seeded the intelligence in the family to her until he found out that his SAT scores and ACT scores were higher than hers were. That took him by surprise uh, to realize that. He went to school at Emory. Now, it was at Emory. He didn't, he didn't use drugs because he got injured. He used drugs because the kids that he knew there said, hey, you know, in high school, you've been like living this kind of Spartan life because he wasn't drinking or smoking dope or anything in high school because he was like his view was I'm a hockey player. You know, I don't I don't you know, I want to keep my body pure. Uh, he did. 
Um, but then he got to school and kids said, oh, you ought to try this shit. You know, this is really good. Pardon my language. Um, so then he did. But, I mean, he got hooked. And, and it's weird, Tony, because in my family, like my brother, um, he got addicted to opioids back in, it must have been like the, the 80s. Um, and it was like, who was getting addicted to opioids back in the eighties besides people who were living in the inner city, but he did, he was at the time, he was already a doctor, my brother, but he wound up, he got bad. I mean, he lost his license. He wound up in, you know, in jail a few times. Um, and then he went into into a program, into a treatment program, and wound up getting out of that and being sober ever since and got his medical license back. And he's an addiction psychiatrist now. And, but though, but his daughter, one of his kids um, is a recovering addict. So there's something in my family that, you know, I think we just weren't aware of. I don't know if it would have made any difference with Josh, you know, if we'd been aware of it. And the whole thing was terrible just to see him go downhill over such a brief time. He went into treatment at in January, the beginning of the year, when he died in August of that year. He went into treatment and... But then he relapsed pretty quick. I mean, not in terms of using, but in terms of him deciding that he wasn't really an addict. And then when he went back to school, because he'd been out of school for treatment, when he went back to school, we were getting him set up to, um, to go back to school. And then he wound up visiting with some friends and got hold of some oxycodone and, and died. Um, which was, I mean, it's like there's life before he died and life since he died, and they're totally different things. Everything's different. Oh, yeah. Everything. I mean, I know, I know exactly how you feel, how you say about that. It's, <clears throat> it's tough even to do anything like um, laugh or smile, you know. Yeah. Um, everything, everything changes. And for those out there who have listened to my last few shows about learn to cope and uh, joining a group, um, it's critical that you, as long as there's breath, there's hope. And that's why <clears throat> we call our show courage to hope. And, uh, and uh, you need to, you need to never give up. <clears throat> if you have somebody who's got an addiction problem, never give up on them. Show them all the love you got because you, what you don't want is regrets. You want to be able to to be right there for them, you know. Learn to cope. But that's Julian Peterson's organization. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah, she's done. They've done a terrific job with people, Tony. I've been. She's really something, and the group has been really something. She is. She's. Um. She was actually a guest a few weeks back. Joanne Peterson was. And, her history is, um, you know, it's quite a quite a history in, in her family, and I, and I begin to agree with you that 
um, addiction, I think there must be some gene in a person's brain that comes from their ancestors because it seems like um, in, um, in my family, um, you know, it wasn't drugs, it was, it was gambling. And I come from a long list of Italian gamblers, I guess, you know, and, uh, <clears throat> but it's the same thing. You get high when you win, you'll get high when you lose, you go down, you know, and it's that sort of thing. And, um, and I think the drug pretty much works the same way in your brain, your endorphins go up and then the endorphins go down. And, um, so you go back, you want some more of that high. So you go back to the drug and the drug starts to control you. And that's what I've seen is the drugs can, you know, uh, I always heard them say, oh, these guys are abusers. No, the drug's the abuser. The, uh, the patient yeah. or the addict is the one who's just going along with it, you know? You know uh, my brother, Jerry, because we've talked about him, but he describes it like there's, let me see, it's kind of like if you're, it's like if you're a computer and you have some computer virus in your brain, the virus is controlling your operating system. The operating system doesn't know it's being controlled by the virus. It's just going around doing its thing. But there's something in it that is controlling it. And that's sort of what he talks about with us, that it's like we're under the control of the addiction once we're addicts. And that it's the disease that drives everything. And you don't know it's the disease. It's like you're like a person who's like all those things with post-hypnotic suggestion with hypnosis, you know, where the person at two o'clock, they go to drink a glass of water and you say, why did you drink the glass of water? And they say, well, I was thirsty. Well, they didn't, they rationalize it because they got the post-hypnotic suggestion. So the disease of addiction, is like that. There's something that's controlling you that you don't know it's controlling you. Um, right. So it is, I think it's a good comparison, Tony. Yes, I was going to say, um, for those who don't, obviously don't know uh, Dan's uh, uh, brother, <clears throat> he's, he's what I would say that when I say the courage to hope, he's turned himself around in a way like most people would like to. I would have never thought of his history, seeing what he is like today, I would have never known about his history with, with opioids or drugs in any way. Um, his brother is a very sophisticated, intelligent guy who um, was just, I think he has an advantage over other psychiatrists because he's, he's done it, he's been there. And he knows how the drug treats people, like you just said, like the virus in a computer. Um, he was there. So he, it's easy for him to, not easy, but it's, <clears throat> I think he's got a leg up over other doctors who have never experienced it. And that makes him quite a efficient, astute person to be the way he handles it. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I, he gets it like most people don't get it. That's right. He's been yeah, there. Doubt doubt he, was, he was there bad. He was bad. Yeah. So you, you said your son was in juniors out yeah. in Westboro. What, what is, what is, so who did he play for? Who was that? The junior Huskies the, the, if in the Eastern Junior Hockey League. I don't know that they still exist anymore, the Huskies, but they did then. So that's who he was playing for. But 
he wasn't making it. He wanted to stay out there another year to keep playing in order to get his game better. And we said, nah, enough, man. <laughs> yeah. Because he okay. wanted, I mean, he wanted, you know, he'd been thinking about NHL. That's where he was heading himself. But I don't think that was realistic for him. I was going to say our sons have a lot in common when it comes to sports and um, being a very, being an athlete, um, mine played football for Curry, but he was extremely good in high school. And I think part of it is he got his high from playing football or hitting a home run in baseball. And then when he got injured and he was told, well, you're never going to be able to play baseball again. I mean, football again. Huh. Um, and then, then you hand him a bottle of oxycodones. Um, I think it's the, it's just like a um, calamity happened here. You've got two things happening at once. You're in pain, and now you're told you can't do the thing you love the most, and you hand him an opioid. So I think that's a, that was the beginning of the end because it's just the worst of two worlds going together. And, uh, and that, that, was, that was it, you know. But he hung on for 20 years as an addict and everything imaginable. So, but I do, one thing I do is, and you do, is we understand the pain of parents that have lost a child and that's the, but the, well, that's part is, of what, that's part of what got me involved with, with Fed Up was just knowing these other people and feeling I'm, I'm at home in a way, because these people, they're, they're like me, you know, most people, whatever they're going through, it's different, but to be with other people who lost kids, I mean, even though we're not talking about that because we're talking about what we can do to make things better, you know the person's going through the same things you went through or are going through, too. So last week we had um, Dave Swindell on, who is a um, co-facilitator of a men's Greek group. And, and um, we're talking about how everybody in the group lost a a uh, child from substance abuse, and we do it strictly with men at this particular group. So men can really um, show their emotion if, you know, get out there and, and let people know, you know, that um, this is, you know, for the, the guy, other guys talking, they, they, what they're going through. And, I, and it's very effective. So with Fed Up, it was kind of like a, a grief group that yeah. wanted to, wanted to get the word out so that other people um, don't have to go through what we've gone through. And that's the key. And I always tell everybody, if your child gets, or anybody gets, you, you get a prescription, make sure you know what you're getting. Make sure you ask the doctor, is there any chance that this thing could be addictive? And do some research. Don't just rely on the doctor. Do some research. Find out what the drug really is and if there's any opioid in it. Sometimes drugs are hidden. A lot of people don't even know that ammonium AD has is uh, is about 25, 30 percent uh, an opioid, um, and they're taking it for a different total, total different reason. But <clears throat> um, there's sleeping pills that have opioids in it. Check the label, see what the contents are. And you, as a doctor, you probably are more aware of these things than I am. Yeah, I would think so. Hey, I yeah. wouldn't worry about the emodium, though, Tony, because that stays within the bowel, so it doesn't get into the system. You ever heard anybody getting high from emodium? I don't think you can. I, I don't think so either, but I don't know. I don't know how that works, but I just say that there's other things like sleeping pills that I know that contain it. 
So um, I've seen the labels. So I, <clears throat> and I just think that uh, you think you're just just saying in general, you have to be aware. I think you have to be aware. I think you guys have talked to me about this law you're trying to get passed there um, to make it so doctors need to tell you that a drug could be addictive because a lot of times they just like slide past that because they think, well, you're probably not going to get addicted, you know, so you get kind of, and it's not that addictive. So you don't really wind up in a position where you make a choice. And for those people who are vulnerable, you know, that can be the beginning of, of, and we don't know who those people are that are vulnerable. No, we don't. We really don't. It's just, it's amazing to me that we don't know things about the genetics. We don't know things that would really allow us to predict that this particular person is going to be safe. We know that certain groups, like people who have depression, are more vulnerable to addiction. People who have anxiety disorders are more vulnerable to addiction. But and people who have other addictions like alcoholism are more vulnerable to addiction to the opioids. But in terms of an individual, we don't know enough to predict it, to say, okay, well, you're really gonna be safe. We just don't know that. It's just shocking. You'd think they'd come up with some kind of thing about the genetics, but we're not there. That's right. Now, uh, going back to the bill for a second, we have a bill um, I have with about five sponsors in the house in Massachusetts. And it's actually stuck in the health committee. Uh, it's not made it out to the floor yet or a vote or anything. So uh, anybody listening would like to help us, we'd like you to call your local rep. And it's called the right to know bill. And we could really use uh, assistance in getting this passed this year. And New Hampshire passed it a couple of years ago and so did in New Jersey. And and during the pandemic, there were only three states in the country that um, actually went down in opioid deaths. And two of those three states was New Jersey and New Hampshire. And, and that's why we need to get this thing passed. And basically what it says is that a doctor who's giving a prescription to a teenager or young, is anybody at all that's under 18 or under, that the parent has to sign off on it and say that they understand that you're giving them an opioid that could be a strongly, could be addictive. And when that happens, parents don't fill the prescription. And you know, once they realize what's in there, because in my own case, I didn't know what an opioid was and I filled my son's prescription because I wasn't, I just wasn't aware. Nobody, nobody told me anything. All I was concerned with the pain in his neck. And that was the goal. The doctor told me that this was going to be the thing that would help him get through his crisis of the pain. So um, we, we need to make sure that, be, that parents are advised. And this is one of the things that we need this bill passed. And this, I, there's no reason not to pass it. That's what I, the way I see it. But it's been out there now for over a year. And it's been in the house. And we've got five other reps who are sponsoring it. And we still can't seem to get it out of committee because uh, person in charge know, of that committee. Do you know what the holdup is, Tony? I don't, other than from what I understand, they, they're just too busy and they haven't got to it. Um, that seems to be what I've been told. Um, they're not saying not to get it out of committee. 
but I would think that we should be able to get it out. Um, but so far, that's where it sits. That's a we shame. Got, yeah, representative. Yeah, if anybody can help, I think that they should. I think it's a good kind of bill. It's been passed in, I think, 17 states, maybe more than that now, that, right. that make it so that when the doctor, you know, is going to prescribe an opioid, they got to tell you or your kid, you know, hey, you know, you're probably not going to get addicted, whatever they're going to tell you, but they have to tell you it's addictive. They can't just say, I'm giving you this thing for pain. What was it going to, is it addictive? You know, eh, not really, you know, whatever. Well, that's the, <clears throat> that's the plan. And I say, uh, Representative Pioli from the Wareham Marion area, uh, she is the official sponsor on the bill, and Josh Cutler and uh, Kathy Lenatra and other reps uh, are also signed on to it. Um, so we need your help, and I know a lot of people listening are on the North Shore. We need you to contact your reps on the North Shore, and if anybody wants to talk to me further about it, they can call WMEX, and uh, Ben will get us uh, get you in touch with me. Because I would like to talk about it. Actually, I'll give you my phone number, uh, 781-799-0837, 781-799-0837. And again, it's, it's, um, you can call me Uncle Tony if you like this, but most people at the station know me as, you know. So, um, Dan, is there, what, what haven't we talked about that you'd like to talk about? Where can we go with this? And, um, Look, the one thing I want to make sure is that people understand that at this time, whatever you're getting from the streets, you have a risk of dying from it. That the risks, the DEA started this new campaign called One Pill Can Kill, because it's true. Because you get something from the street, whether you think you're getting Xanax or you think you're getting Coke. Yeah. Or you think you're getting heroin, or you think you're getting oxycodone, Vicodin, you're getting fentanyl. And this stuff is 50 to 100 times as powerful as heroin. And people, all these things you're hearing about, where these people are dying, actors and all kinds of people, they don't think they're taking fentanyl. They think they're okay, but now you're not. Nobody's okay. I mean, if you get something from a pharmacy, it's okay. If you're getting something from the street, don't use it. And the supply chains have all been screwed up by COVID too. So there's no safety in buying drugs off the street anymore. People have to know that. People have to know just you're better off if you're addicted and you can't get it legitimately to get yourself into treatment because there's too many people dying right now from this fentanyl. It's just terrible. I mean, we lost 100,000 people um, last year. And, and, any, and any number is too big. And that's a huge number. Um, tell me something that, that uh, the average person asked me. How come we see on these doctor shows on TV when they're in surgery, they use fentanyl during the surgery? What, what, are we, what are we missing here that's the difference between what they're doing and what is on the street? They're giving it in a controlled amount. 
as a perfectly good opioid-based pain medicine to get people through the hospitalization. There's been a lot of research that's been done by surgeons. I know because my daughter talked about that and, and she's a surgeon. Um, and she even gave a grand rounds when she was a resident about the opioids and surgery. But people have come up with things like how long do patients need opioids after surgery? Um, they, and they've done a lot of work to try to minimize it now. But that's like stuff that comes where, you, where they know what they're getting. When you're getting opioids on the street and you're getting fentanyl, that stuff that's made in Mexico by local Mexican labs with products that come from the cartels and then get transferred into the United States. And you have no idea when you use anything right now, whether it's got a little bit of fentanyl or a ton of fentanyl in it. That's the difference. So, and, and does that fentanyl that you get during surgery get in your system to the point where you could get addicted to it or you, you, you don't even know about it because you're asleep when it, no, you're you out. Could, you could, you could. I mean, it depends. Look, the longer they give you something, and the more you use of it, the more likely you are to get addicted. So you got three things that are involved. One is the length of time. So you try to keep people medically. You try to keep people on opioids as short a time as possible. But you know the research people who are on these opioids, even for a week, are more likely to be using them after a year. Um, so there's no complete safety. And it's not like you're going to take opioids and there's no chance you're going to become addicted. There's a chance. It's just, I mean, realistically, I think what the medical community's tried to do is to minimize the amount of opioids that people are getting to avoid them where possible. So, but yeah, when they're giving you opioids in the hospital, there's a risk there. And it's not like okay. people think the fact that you're in pain kind of soaks up the potential to become addicted, but it doesn't. It turns out that you're vulnerable to addiction, whether you're in a lot of pain or not. It's not like because you're in pain, you won't get addicted. When I was in medical school, Tony, which was <laughs> back in the early 70s, we thought that if people were in a lot of pain, then they wouldn't get addicted, but it's just not so. Yeah, that's what um, <clears throat> it's all. It's all a matter of the addiction gene in the brain, right? Yeah. And, um, so um, there's a theory out there. Some, some thing I hear from some people who are obviously opposed to opioids, like myself. Uh, a little pain won't hurt you, and if you have the pain, your body will heal faster. Is there any truth to that? I don't think so. I mean, I think you know. I mean, if you have so much pain that you're like playing through pain. You know, like when you when you're like playing football or something like that, and they're giving these people drugs in order to keep them out there playing, so they can take care of themselves. Obviously, they're not going to heal that fast because they're not going to be aware that they're in pain because they got drugs in them to keep them from being aware. But as a general rule, it's not. I'm not opposed to using opioids. I think that there's a role for them. I just don't think there's a role for them for people who have chronic illnesses. 
that are painful conditions because there's no evidence that that really brings them long-term relief. When you take people who have, there's a lot of chronic illnesses that have a lot of pain. I mean, everybody who's got real bad chronic back pain or something like that or bad arthritis is familiar with that. So part of the way this whole thing got started was with some doctors coming to believe and then industry getting involved with that, that, hey, we can treat these people. Tony, I'm sorry, I don't know how much time we got, but this is actually the third epidemic of opioids that we've had in this country. The first one occurred after the Civil War. What had happened was that they had begun to use morphine with hypodermic needles shortly before the Civil War. And during the Civil War, that's what they had when people got, you know, terrible pain from, you know, getting, having to be amputated, stuff like that. But after the war, this got to be more popular and people began using morphine. And at first, just like with this epidemic, at first, everybody was reporting these great results. But then what happened was more and more and more people began to get addicted to it. And it got to be a complete mess. And then at that point, the thing came to an end and people weren't using morphine. Then in the 1890s, the Bayer Company, the same people who make Bayer aspirin, they developed a wonderful new drug that they said, this drug does everything that morphine does, but it's not addictive. And that drug was heroin, heroin. So for years, they marketed heroin, like this stuff is not addictive. And everybody was like real happy with the results. It was just like this current thing. And then finally, people began to realize how addictive it was to the point where they then made heroin illegal. But for years, they're marketing it inside. I mean, it's called heroin because it's like a hero drug that is, that, you know, it's going to help you, but it's not going to get you addicted like morphine. Well, well, that was just, I can't say the words here because it's like on the radio, but it was just wrong. And then, then for years, people weren't, prescribing things. And then you get these people who say, hey, there's people with chronic pain who can be helped by these drugs. For years, we were just using them for short-term pain. That was it. That was it. People who were like in the hospital or people who had terrible, terrible pain conditions, like people with sickle cell anemia, get into these horrible, painful episodes where it's, it's a short-acting thing. It's called sickle cell crisis. Those people need something. I think those people should be getting opioids. That's me personally. You know, I don't think that that they should be made to suffer like that. I mean, I think there's a risk of, you know, addiction, but there's also the trauma of being in terrible pain with nobody there to help you anyway. I agree with you. And then we are just about out of time. So if you're, Dan, if you have any one last thing you'd like to, let the, the people know, let's go back to Fed Up. How does one join Fed Up or get on the, on the email uh, list so they can be a participant and, and help in any way they can? So the website for Fed Up is www.fedupraly.org. And just go there 
and you can join, you can sign up for what you want to. And we've also, more than the website, we've got a presence on, on Facebook and on Twitter, but the website will get you there. Okay. And you're right, we're, we're, we're behind the clock here. So again, Dan, we've been speaking to Dr. Daniel Bush from the Illinois, and we really appreciate your time. And again, if anybody would like to contact me about my bill, it's 781-799-0837. And thank you very much, Dan. Tony, thank you for having me and thank you for all your work in this area. You're welcome.